Contracts, salary caps. Why do our favorite teams make some of the moves they do? It's usually the money. It's time for the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Hello, boys and girls. Welcome to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Really proud to have a friend, a colleague at ESPN, someone I've worked with and known a long time, and someone who's also in the Philadelphia uh, area, which is quite a time to be in Philadelphia with the Eagles championship. Welcome to the program. John Barr of ESPN Outside the Lines Enterprise Unit does great work reporting on all things investigative for ESPN. And what the one we'll talk about is, of course, Larry Nasser and the tragedies going on with the gymnastics uh, with the girls over the past several years. John, welcome and good to have you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's good, good to talk to you. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is... We miss you. We miss yeah, you. Come back, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Um, there's so much to unpack about Larry Nasser, and I guess maybe what I try to do is sort of give guests an open canvas to sort of where to start. This is a tragedy, and I, it's a word I use going back several years. You've done some dogged reporting on it and uncovered a lot, but in sort of explaining the Larry Nasser. Uh, whatever you want to call it. I use tragedy. Where do you start? What is your blank canvas first comment about what you've been covering? Well, my my first exposure to it, and maybe that is a logical starting point, was in uh, the late summer of 2016. Um, I was working on a special at the time for ESPN on hazing, and you know what it's like at ESPN when a story is sort of coming in for a landing, it gets a little crazy and it becomes all consuming and you get this tunnel vision where right. everything else uh, gets blocked out. Uh, it just so happens that the law firm that had helped us with respect to getting access to a hazing victim was also the same law firm representing uh, at the time a Jane Doe who was getting ready to file a lawsuit against USA Gymnastics and Larry Nasser. Um, and we now know that that Jane Doe was Jamie Dancher, who uh, has since come forward and has made some very powerful victim impact statements in court. Uh, Jamie Dancher was a bronze medalist at the 2000 Sydney Olympics. Mm. But at that time, Jamie was, was the first one, the first national team gymnast, the first Olympian to sue Larry Nasser. And in that original Indianapolis Star article that helped blow this thing wide open, uh, the Star article quoted Rachel Den Hollander, um, right. who is a an attorney who lives in Louisville, Kentucky, and this unnamed former Olympian, who we now know uh, is Jamie Dancher. What I had no concept of at the time, and I don't think anybody else did, was just how far-reaching this was. Right. And w w once Rachel Den Hollander publicly accused Larry Nasser of sexually assaulting her during a medical exam, uh, first publicly in the Indianapolis Star, uh, it just opened up the floodgates, and women just came out in droves. And you know, and now we're at a point where more than 260 women have wow. filed complaints about this guy, criminal complaints. And more than 200 women are now part of civil lawsuits suing Nasser, USA Gymnastics, and former officials there, Michigan State, and others. Uh, so it's taken on this feel of just this 
sprawling legal case, the criminal part of it, which uh, recently wrapped up after a third sentencing yeah. for Nasser, and but the civil case drags on. You know, you mentioned, uh, and we'll start there with Rachel Den Hollander, a, a name that no one knew before mid-January, at least no one publicly, and now she's become, uh, for lack of a better word, a hero in many eyes, including the eyes of the judge doing the sentencing of that well-publicized trial that you were at where she said, you're the hero, you started all this. Uh, Rachel Den Hollander, yeah, yeah. and that's what she was referring to, what you just said, right? Just bringing this case, and now she's an attorney, and she seemed very poised and very statuesque uh, the way she talked. I just think that is is the debt of gratitude to her as big as it seems? I, I think so, uh, and rightfully so. Yeah. Um, she so I don't believe Rachel's a practicing attorney, okay. um, but I but I do know that she has a law degree, and it shows in right. the way she conducts herself in court. Um, just an incredibly bright woman, um, and you know, amazing resolve. She came forward at a time when it when many people still supported Larry Nasser, and was the first to, to put herself out there, uh, you know, using her own name. Mm -hmm. And her backstory is that she alleges she, well, more than alleges, Larry Nasser has been convicted of criminal sexual conduct of Rachel Van Holler. She was one of the cases that wound up being charged in court and he was convicted and sentenced. Um, she was abused as a 15 year old club level gymnast in, in Michigan. And, and most of his victims were club level gymnasts in Michigan, but they weren't all, some of them weren't even athletes. Um, he saw our reporting, you know, took us back more than 25 years to wow. this gym in, in the East Lansing area known as great lakes gymnastics. And back then Larry Nasser was just an athletic trainer. He had worked with the gymnastics team in high school he later went on to become an athletic trainer uh, for the U.S. Olympic team at the Pan Am Games and at the Olympic Trials back in 1988. And around that same time, he started working at Great Lakes Gymnastics with uh, a head coach by the name of John Getter, mm -hmm. who would go on to become the coach of the 2012 Olympic team that won gold in London. And Kathy Clagus was another one of the uh, uh, peers of Larry Nasser. She was at Great Lakes as well, and she later went on to become the head women's gymnastics coach at Michigan State University. So while Gettert and Clegus coached gymnasts there at Great Lakes, Larry, the trainer, would treat them for their injuries in a back room. And parents would have had to walk across the entire workout floor to get to that back room, and none of them ever did. So as a result, you often, you had Larry back there with young women alone, constantly. And it was there, according to these women, that he first started to digitally penetrate them. Uh, he would fondle their breasts. He would, he would digitally penetrate them, telling them that these pelvic treatments would help their injured backs or their injured hamstrings. He did so without parental consent and... Now, wait a minute. I, 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 you know, this is so heartbreaking. These girls, and I know you, they're going to some back room 
are they told to go to this back room by either Geddert or Clegus? And how does yeah? If if you were, yeah, injuries and gymnastics just go hand in hand. Sure. And and the the picture that many of these women uh, we spoke with, and, and we didn't just speak with former gymnasts from Great Lakes. We spoke with parents of gymnasts from Great Lakes, people who worked alongside Geddert at Great Lakes, and then later at the gym that he up until not long ago was the head coach in um, a gym, a gym by the name of Twistars. Right. Um, Gettard's coaching style was such that he broke these women down. He broke them down mentally. And according to them, he broke them down physically. He was so demanding, even under the best of circumstances, gymnasts get injured. You look at what they do to their bodies. It's just, it just goes with the sport. Uh, but according to these women, Gettert pushed them to a point where injuries were commonplace. Mm. And so they would go back and they would see Larry for treatment. And, and it was during those treatments that he first started using this quote unquote procedure of intravaginal and intrarectal um, massage. And many of these, these weren't women. These were young girls in in many cases. They'd never had a sexual experience in their lives. They're back there alone with this guy. And he convinced them that this was a legitimate medical procedure. And it wasn't. It just wasn't. And it, it was abuse. And it was abuse that went on for more than 25 years. Now, is there any way, have you talked in any of your reporting, that what he did with these what seemed to be horrific ways of treating these girls had any medical value. Well, it's interesting. There's a woman named Christine Whitmore who is uh, works in the urology department at Drexel here in Philly. And she, uh, we quoted her actually in an article we wrote back in October of 2016. And she was referred to me by another osteopathic physician. Larry Nasser is an osteopathic physician, was at least. And uh, Dr. Whitmore told me that pelvic floor massage actually is an accepted medical procedure, and it can be used to treat something called pelvic floor dysfunction when the muscles in the pelvic area become uh, taut. Uh, the only way to access them is via you know, an intravaginal treatment. Mm. And there's also something called interstitial cystitis, which is this painful bladder condition. And it also can be a useful treatment for that. But there are protocols. You always use gloves Mm. uh, because you can introduce pathogens if you don't. Of course. You explain the procedure on the front end. You you know, you don't just do it. You, You explain it. You explain the rationale behind it. You have a chaperone in the room, you know, because it's, you're dealing with a sensitive area and you know, my wife goes to get treatment for a shoulder at PCOM, the Philadelphia college of osteopathic medicine. Mm -hmm. When she goes in there to get her shoulder treated with her shirt on, the doctor has somebody else in the room, you know? And in the case of a minor, you get parental consent. The idea that this guy would digitally penetrate a minor without speaking to the parents, you know, as a parent, that's 
that's what really jumps out at you as something where you say, oh, my God, this is not appropriate. Now, was he also treating the injuries? I mean, if someone came back there with a with an ankle or a knee or a shoulder or a calf or a hamstring, beyond his abusive treatments, was he was he actually also treating the injury? There are look, there are women who talked about Larry being a quote unquote miracle worker. Jordan Weber, when she went to the 2012 mm-hmm. Olympics, uh, now she has since come out and joined with her teammates from that 2012 gold medal winning squad, uh, Michaela Maroney, Ali Raisman, uh, Gabby Douglas. Right. She's, she's the fourth member of that team to now say Larry Nassar sexually assaulted her during medical exams. But if you go back and you look during the, that period of, of when they won the gold, Jordan Weber was quoted as saying, Larry, you know, worked miracles. And there were women who did credit him with helping them get better. And what's so, what's so unusual about this, uh, this abuse and this pattern of abuse yeah. is the fact that the women took so long to recognize it as abuse. You know, it happened to so many of them when they were young before they had a full understanding of, of what abuse really was. Right. You know, look, this is happening. This is a doctor, right? So part of it was they just couldn't process that somebody in that position would abuse them. We're, we're taught to respect the white coat. And he also was the doctor for the Olympic team. So you had these club-level gymnasts who idolized these Olympians. And when they would go into his office uh, on the campus of Michigan state university, he had Olympic memorabilia all over the walls. He groomed many of them by bringing them ribbons and posters from international competitions to, to gain favor with them. Their parents thought it was a big deal that their kid got to go see the Olympic doctor. So surely this guy couldn't be abusing me. He's got all these credentials. And, and many of them would go on to see him well into their 20s. Mm. There's a woman who, who had some problems with a few of her pregnancies, and she spoke to us about them and said that she continued to see Nasser well into her 20s. And so that's that. And, and when yeah, Rachel it's... Den Hollander ultimately went in late 2016 and reported Nasser as, as abusing her, that was the moment when a lot of women had to look back and think to themselves, well, geez, I guess he was abusing me too. <laughs> you know, they, yeah, they came I mean, to this harsh reality. That's my question. And we'll get to the stakeholders involved in a minute, obviously USOC, Michigan state, USAG, but this question is not in any way to put any blame on the victims, but before Den Hollander, no one's complaining. No one's going to their parents. No one's going to authorities. Well, that's just it, Andrew. And that's what our reporting did reveal is people did try to raise warning signs and and, and the warning signs were ignored. Um, You know, in our initial reporting, we found four uh, women who went to people at Michigan State in the late 90s. In in 1997, a woman named Larissa Boyce was a 16-year-old gymnast at something called Spartan Youth, which was a program for promising East Lansing area gymnasts run by Kathy Clagus, Michigan State University's head gymnastics coach. Larissa 
was digitally penetrated by Larry Nasser over multiple exams. She decided to tell Clagus about it uh, and did in 1997, in late 1997. She was very clear with her, she said. She said she told her he was penetrating her during medical exams. <laughs> a, a second gymnast was in the room when that conversation between Clagus and, and Larissa was occurring. The second gymnast confirms what Larissa told Clegus and says she too told Clegus she was being digitally penetrated by Larry Nasser. Clegus did not, according to the women, and, and we found no, nothing to suggest otherwise, Clegus did not report that incident. She didn't report it to anybody at Michigan State. She didn't report it even to their parents. Fast forward a year, 1998, um, a softball player on full scholarship, Tiffany Thomas Lopez, went to see Dr. Nasser for an injured back. She too was digitally penetrated. She told three athletic trainers, including a supervisor who's still at the school, a woman named Destiny Teachner Hawk, um, complained about the nature of the treatments, was very clear about what he was doing. Um, I've spoken with her boyfriend at the time, and he, you know, remembers listening to her and encouraging her to tell somebody. Um, nothing happened. Larry Nasser was never reported. Hmm. They told her she had to continue to see him if she wanted to keep playing. She wouldn't. So they ultimately declared her medically inactive, and she dropped out of school. So that's three women. 1999, a woman named Christy Achenbach, cross-country runner, Went to see Nasser once and one time only. She was 21 at the time. Cross country runner, not a gymnast. Not a gymnast. Mm -hmm. Not a yeah. She she was she was a distance runner at Michigan State. She complained to her coach Kelly Burt, who has since left the school. Um, nothing happened. These women were they they were not believed. They were told things like, "Well, he's a, a doctor for the Olympic team. You must you must be misunderstanding." You know, Destiny Teachner Hawk tried to pass it off as a legitimate medical procedure. Fast forward to 2014, mm -hmm. a former student files a complaint to police about Nasser. After going to see him, he talked, he didn't even penetrate her, according to the woman. He massaged her in her vaginal area and touched her breast. This is according to her. Mm -hmm. She told another doctor at the clinic, she told a receptionist that same day that she felt violated. They launched a police investigation and a Title IX investigation. Well, during the course of the Title IX investigation, they talked to four medical experts. They were all people who knew Nasser. One of them was his protege and good friend. And one of them, lo and behold, was Destiny Teachner Hawk, the athletic training supervisor who Tiffany Thomas Lopez, the softball player, had complained to back mm. in 1998. When they asked Destiny Teachner Hawk about Larry Nasser, she said, I've never received a complaint about him in 17 years. Yeah. You know? So there were all these missed warning signs. And then fast forward, uh, rewind a little bit. Uh, the, during the victim impact statements that came out during his first sentencing hearing, two more Michigan State athletes came out. One was a rower. Uh, one was a volleyball player. And they said they too tried to tell coaches. And they weren't believed. So that's at least a half dozen examples that we're aware of in the late two, late 90s and early 2000s where women did come forward and try to report this guy, and they just weren't taken seriously. And it was 
kept in-house, and he was allowed to continue to see patients. This is maddening. And when you start bringing up dates like 1997, 1998, 1999, that is 20 years ago. And you start thinking, as I'm sure you have many times, if someone had taken this seriously. It, it, it's brutal. It's brutal. Yeah, and, and look, I mentioned that 2014 case where mm-hmm. the woman went to police and there was a Title IX investigation. You know, Nasser was briefly suspended from seeing patients at Michigan State after that, when that Title IX investigation was going on. But he was ultimately allowed, after they you know, interviewed the four quote-unquote medical experts who knew him, uh, he was allowed to go back to work, even though he was still being investigated by police. Ultimately, they never filed charges against the guy, but you know, the guy was allowed to continue to see patients. And during that time, we now know uh, at least a dozen patients say he sexually assaulted them during medical exams. Um, so, you know, <laughs> It's amazing. It's, it's amazing how it's amazing how many times there were there was either a lack of communication or women were not taken seriously. The, the, the number of times this guy could have been stopped, it's mind boggling. And now, and that doesn't even be, begin to touch on the USA Gymnastics stuff. I mean, this guy was reported right. to USA Gymnastics in the summer of 2015, and he continued to see patients. So, so with Michigan State, was it the same setup as in the early days where somehow, some way, he would be in a back room with no one else around? Well, in Michigan, no, in Michigan State, he had an office. He, was, he had an office at the sports medicine facility. Right. Um, but, you know, everybody talked about what a, what a big feather in your cap it would be to see Larry Nasser. Well, the reality is Larry Nasser was everywhere. Larry Nasser was in a back room at Great Lakes in the 80s. Mm-hmm. He was then at, in a back room at a, at a gym uh, called Twistars starting in 1996. In 1997, when Kathy Clegg had Spartan youth on the campus of uh, Michigan State University, he, ha- he, had, uh, he saw young women in a training room in the basement of Jenison Fieldhouse on the campus of Michigan State University. But he was a treating clinician at the sports medicine facility at Michigan State. But, but Andrew, he had, he had the parents of many of these young women so convinced that they could trust him that a lot of them would drop their kids off at his house. Mm. He had a training table in his basement. There's a young woman who's made a number of public appearances, and she's been interviewed by ESPN repeatedly now. Her name's Lindsay Lemke. She right. was a former Michigan State University gymnast. And Lindsay alleges in her lawsuit, her civil lawsuit, she was abused hundreds of times by Larry Nasser. And her mom, Christy Lemke Akeo, who is just wrought with guilt now, um, talks about how Larry would hold the side door of the sports medicine facility open after hours. And she, because you know, the building would be locked and she'd drop Lindsay off and he'd, she'd go off and do some grocery shopping for an hour while yeah. Lindsay got treated by Larry. She'd drop Larry off at, or drop uh, Lindsay off at Larry's house um, because they lived kind of in the same area. And now of course she's just killing herself that she trusted this man so much with her daughter. 
Yeah, the parents. And, you know, when you mentioned the parents, the poignant images from last week stick out with the man who had three daughters abused. And uh, I'm sure it caught your attention so much that he asked the judge for three minutes alone with Nasser. He asked the judge for one minute alone. And then he attacked. And I think that went viral. Millions of people saw the video. He and we just felt for him, right? And then the judge said there would be no contempt of court or any kind of charges against him. But that punctuated sort of the parent angle as much as anything, I thought. Big time. Yeah, I, I don't – it was pretty gut-wrenching. At the first sentencing hearing, uh, the thing that – so many things hang with me, but yeah. there's a woman named Donna Markham who got up and talked about her daughter, Chelsea, and how her daughter, Chelsea uh, – took her own life and oh. you know ultimately she believes that it, it was largely because of the the spiral that this sexual abuse you know started her she 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 just couldn't deal with it and 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 the very first woman to speak a woman named Kyle Stevens she she spoke about how she was abused as a six-year-old, oh my God. she wasn't a gymnast. She wasn't an athlete. She was six. She was the daughter of family friends. Her mom and dad would go over to the Nassers and they'd cook Sunday dinner together. And she'd be down in the basement with her brother and Larry Nasser's kids. And, um, and that's where she says Larry Nasser started to first expose himself to her and later fondle her and, and, and digitally penetrate her. And, she said it wasn't until she was 12 that she understood it as abuse and told her parents, but her, her dad didn't believe her. And it became kind of a bone of contention between the two. And uh, it wasn't until she was 18 and going off to college that she had this kind of knockdown drag out argument with her father. And the subject came up again. And she said, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but she effectively said, you know, Larry really did abuse me and he grabbed her. He wouldn't believe her. And she's, and she looked him in the eye and he, and said, he did this to me. Mm. And, and, and her dad just, his, 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 he just crumbled. And it finally sunk in that she wasn't lying. The father wound up taking his own life yeah. as a direct result of this. Well, look, he had some other issues going on, but she's convinced this contributed to it. So when you start hearing these stories, you realize that the, the ripple effect of what this man did is something that we're never going to completely understand. Yeah, I remember you telling that story in your reporting for Outside the Lines, and you used the two words that really just stuck with me that whole day, which were human wreckage. Uh, yeah. That yeah, he left behind, it, it, that, it, that he wrought. I guess... Yep. Yeah, it's brutal. And look, and he got a sentence in line with that. Yeah. I mean, we'll get to the sentence and and what happens next, if anything. But I guess my question is, why? You know, this is what we're all asking. Why would Michigan State cover up? Why would USOC cover up? Why would USAG cover up? Why not put the girls first? Um, 
you know, that's what leaves you just the same way everyone felt after the Sandusky thing came out of Penn State. Just why the cover-up? Yeah, and, and, and there's just so many unanswered questions, you know. That, yeah. Like, for people who aren't aware, like the, the chain of events, in the summer, in June of 2015, uh, there was a coach down at the Caroli Ranch, which was the national training center for the U.S. Olympic team right. and, the, and the national team down in Texas. It's just outside of Houston, run by Bella and Marta, Marta Caroli, these legendary figures who, you know, loaded over the Olympic team for so many years. Um, so there's a, there was a young woman named Maggie Nichols who was down there. Maggie Nichols was the second-ranked gymnast in America at the time behind... Uh, Simone Biles, and she was overheard talking to Ali Raisman uh, about these treatments by Larry Nassar, and, and the coach who overheard the conversation is a woman named Sarah Jancy, who's Maggie Nichols' coach from a gym back in the Twin Cities area. Well, Sarah was so taken aback by what she heard that she reported it to USA Gymnastics. So USA Gymnastics they hired a woman named Fran Seppler, who was a workplace harassment investigator. And they basically did an internal investigation. They, Fran Seppler interviewed Maggie Nichols, and then she went to interview Allie Raisman. And then during the course of the interview with Allie Raisman, Allie Raisman said, well, you should really go talk to Michaela Maroney too, because he's been doing this to Michaela as well. So that took about five weeks for them to interview those three women. In its original statement about when it found out about your, uh, the abuse by Nasser and when it reported it, USA Gymnastics said, you know, we immediately reported it to authorities. Well, they didn't immediately report mm. it to authorities. They waited five weeks. They did an internal investigation first. And what's really curious is they finally reported it to the FBI in late J- July of 2015, right? Then they allowed Nasser to resign he wasn't fired. He basically put out this lengthy Facebook post in September saying that he was stepping down uh, from his position as national medical coordinator. He continued to work at Michigan state as a mm. doctor, uh, treating gymnasts, treating other athletes, really treating anybody who walked in his door. And USA Gymnastics, even though they had three national team members saying, you know, this guy's abusing me during medical exams, they never picked up the phone and called Michigan State. Yeah. You know? Um, now, similarly, in 2014, when Michigan State was investigating the guy and when he was reported to police, they never called USA Gymnastics. So the, two large institutions not communicating with one another. Uh, and then the, the bizarre thing about the FBI case is, even though it was reported to the FBI in late July of 2015, they didn't reach out to Maggie Nichols or Allie Raisman until well into 2016. And Allie Raisman is convinced that the reason that Steve Penny, the CEO and president of USA Gymnastics, uh, put off her uh, interview with the FBI is because they didn't want a scandal before the Rio Olympics. Mm. She's convinced that they just wanted to have a good Olympics and they didn't want to, anything to taint it. Um, you know, you Penny won't the, comment about that, yeah. but, but that's what Raisman believes. 
And now you mentioned some of these Olympic gymnasts like Ali Raisman and others who are getting uh, more attention than others because of their stature in bringing these allegations or these charges of abuse. But you mentioned Michaela Maroney. She had a confidentiality agreement, correct? And one that she obviously broke, but is it or was it even enforceable? Well, it's pretty clear that USA Gymnastics isn't going to go after her for the money, and it would be, you know, right. the, the optics of doing that would be horrible, right? Um, but yeah, in late 2000, I believe it was in November of 2016, uh, when the Nasser scandal was starting to kind of percolate, and when this is right by that point, Rachel Denhalder had come forward. Jamie Dancher, then known only as Jane Doe, had come forward, and and if, and other women were coming forward to Michigan State Police. Right around that time, Michaela Maroney entered into a confidentiality agreement with USA Gymnastics, and her attorney at that time was uh, Gloria Allred. Uh, she's the one who negotiated mm. the, the deal for Michaela. And Michaela is now represented by an attorney named John Manley, who is an Irvine, California-based attorney. And he, along with two other Michigan-based attorneys, they form like this troika of attorneys who are representing the most women. They represent more than 120 women now who are suing Larry Nassar, Michigan State, USAG, and others. Um but yeah, Michaela Maroney signed a confidentiality agreement, and Manley, her current attorney, uh, told me that those agreements are flat out illegal in, mm-hmm. in California. You, you can't sign, you can't make a victim of child sex abuse make the false choice of remaining silent. Um, so, whether that agreement would even stand up in a California court is that's you know that's a, an issue for a judge there to decide, but Manley's of the opinion that it wouldn't stand up and it's not worth the paper it's printed on. But the, just the fact that USAG would do that yeah. is pretty telling yeah. because it, because at that point in the, in the reporting cycle, we were wondering, well, heck, if he did this to these, if, if what these women are saying is true and he did this to all of these club level gymnasts in the Michigan area, and we know that he's been treating Olympic gymnasts as a trainer since 1986 and as national medical coordinator since 1996. Well, did he do it to national team members and Olympians? And if, and if he did, well, where are they? Why aren't they coming forward? Well, now we know in Michaela Maroney's case that the reason she didn't come forward back then is because yeah. they paid to keep her quiet. Yeah, I mean, the, paid, the stakeholders are everywhere in this in this complicit with, with Nasser, which is just, to me, maybe the most stunning part. Yeah, you had a pervert, you had someone that was pleasuring himself at the expense of these poor women, but but the allowances made are just stunning. Um, well, and there's been accountability, right? And you look yeah. at what happened, you know, Steve Penny, uh, he stepped down in February as the president and CEO of USA Gymnastics, but many people believe that wasn't enough. So. Right. Um, you know, in recent weeks, we saw um, the entire board of USA Gymnastics resign. Right. Um, you know, and then the fallout at Michigan State. The president resigned. The athletic director resigned. Kathy Clagus, 
the gymnastics coach who missed those warning signs way back in 1997. She, she resigned back in February mm-hmm. um, of last year. So, you know, people have lost jobs and there has been accountability, but, you know, when it comes to the liability, uh, that's what still is yet to be determined. And, and that's a, that's a complicated issue in and of itself, just determining how much Michigan, Michigan state was Larry Nasser's full-time employer, right? Everything he did for USA gymnastics or at twist Stars gym was on a volunteer basis. Mm. There, were, there were kind of three prongs to his employment agreement at Michigan state. He was a treating clinician. He was a faculty member. And then the third prong is he had to do outreach. And as part of his outreach, he was national medical coordinator for USA Gymnastics, but he was also like this volunteer who treated uh, gymnasts at Twist Stars at Holt High School, the high school where he lives or lived. Um, So in terms of, you know, the entity that's really holding the bag here from a monetary standpoint, it's Michigan State University. So what happens, John? We know that Larry Nassar will never see the light of day. These sentences from three different trials, as you mentioned, go into the hundreds of years. All the lawsuits against him, what will happen there? I mean, uh, we assume that he doesn't have much money. And that will, no, that will... he, you know, he, he, he blew his entire, his entire retirement savings uh, in legal fees, just in, in his federal and case um, right. and two state cases. Um, so he's broke uh, th- that we know. Right. Um, it, it, look, the, the judge presiding over the civil cases uh, ordered the sides to go into mediation late last year. And they did so, uh, I think it was for initially for a period of six weeks, and there was a bit of an extension. But the, the bottom line is they couldn't come to an agreement. Um, so now we're back in that phase of discovery where multiple law firms representing more than 200 women are going to be trying to figure out who knew what and when at Michigan State. And, um, you know, whether they come to some sort of an agreement or not uh, remains to be seen, but it's, you know, I I hesitate to make the comparison because people sort of resist the comparison, but I know you're familiar with the Penn state outcome where more than 30 men got, I believe it was $93 million in settlements. Right. Well, this is, this is more than 200 women. Jeez. So, and, and how do you assign a monetary value to what happened to them? You know, when you hear these stories of how their lives have been shattered, how people have committed suicide, loved ones have committed suicide. And, and, and you know, you hear the stories about just what they're dealing with in their day-to-day lives and how this has impacted them. Yeah. Um, I don't know how you assign a value to that. And like you said, the ripple effects with family and, and uh, back to those two words, the human carnage. I mean, we know about those suicides you mentioned, but think about these, these women's friends, family, boyfriends, significant others, spouses that, that are dealing with the after effects. I mean, it's, 
it's a, I mean, the ripples well, are, you know, yeah. yeah, the thing that the thing the thing that I was most encouraged by, though, if you could kind of look for hopeful signs, yeah, exactly, is, go. Is is just the is just the the idea that so many women who were going to remain anonymous, yeah. were empowered by seeing other women speak, that they decided to shed their anonymity, and you know, there's and I, and I think every time a young woman does that, it just further uh, beats down this notion that there should be some stigma, you know? Um, I, I don't know if that helps the women as a collective group deal with it. Uh, it certainly, in the women I spoke with um, were empowered by, right. by what happened in those Michigan courtrooms. Um, I, you know, I, I hope that helps. I, you would hope that would help them deal as they move forward, but you would also hope that would it would inspire a young woman who's being abused to come forward and to speak up. You know, um, I think that's exactly I, right, and I think um, you know I think that's a great way to to wrap on a hopeful note of something that's been tragic. And you know, we have talked about the doom and gloom in this, but. Yeah, these are shining stars. We go back to where I started with, you mentioned her first, Rachel Den Holland, uh, the first to sort of shine a light into the darkness. And She's, she's a rock star. And yeah. You know, she she yeah. really is a remarkable lady. She's got three kids. Her husband, Jacob, is somebody who I've connected with on social media. Uh-huh. You know, th- this, is, this is a lady who not only was the first, uh, She's met with legislators in Michigan to try to change the reporting laws in Michigan. Hmm. You know, this, this, she's she's become an agent for change, yeah. and that's pretty remarkable that she could take this horrible situation and actually, you know, contribute to the greater good. Yeah. You know, um, just a, just a, one of the more impressive people I've ever come across. Yeah. And John, you're a rock star too. because you've done you know again you you haven't done what rachel's done but you have shined a light into this too where i mean i think that's the value of investigative reporting that is it just contributes so much that now we've seen this and maybe there'll be another nasser down the road but maybe there won't and part of it is people like yourself exposing this this unseemliness out there. Well, I appreciate it. I do. Uh, I think we both aren't. We're not. Look, neither of us are naive. We know there are, are pedophiles in our midst, right. and there will be more. There will be others. Uh, but you would hope, certainly, somebody in that position, there would be enough controls put in place uh, so that this will never happen again. You know, and, and maybe that's the hopeful way to end it too. It is indeed. John Barr, ESPN Outside the Lines, tremendous work on this Larry Nasser cake that we Larry Nasser case that we've just delved into. Thanks for being part of the Business of Sports podcast. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, my friend. Thanks for listening to the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also get additional insider insight by listening to the Ross Tucker Football Podcast, Fantasy Feast, Even Money, and College Draft Podcast, all at RossTucker.com or wherever podcasts are found.